Morning, folks. How are we? It's great to be with you. Uh, it really is. Uh, I am from Stirling College, as uh, Megan has said, and uh, Stirling College is the Church of Christ's uh, National Theological Bible College. Call it what you want. Um, we're about 110, 100, something, 111 years old, um, and we've been doing that. Uh, originally, we were called College of the Bible, some of you may have heard of that, then Church of Christ Theological College down at Stirling Theological College. Uh, we're a member college of the University of Divinity uh, and we offer um, some, some awards in various areas. Um, uh, the typical ministry, theology pathway from the planet through a PhD, we do all that sort of stuff, which uh, you expect us to do. We also offer a Master of Counselling uh, for people who uh, want to be equipped as professional counsellors approved by the uh, industry bodies in that area. We also run an exciting program called Catalyst, which we started last year in Perth. We're now running in Perth and Melbourne. Um, and Catalyst is for kind of young adults to get a sense and a validation and, and some theological and some biblical kind of grunt for their vocation, whether it's an engineer, nurse, teacher, uh, whatever it is. We, we think it's so important, not just people who are in ministry or that allied area have that kind of grounding and encouragement and, and reflection um, on, on their vocation, but God actually has a plan and a purpose for each of us uh, in, in our roles in, in various parts of life. And so this is about that. We take them to uh, the slums in Bangkok with Urban Names of Hope and they live there for a couple of weeks and reflect out of that. They live in the indigenous community in Central Australia for a couple of weeks and reflect out of that, um, looking at themes of kingdom, of justice, uh, compassion and all sorts of issues so that wherever it is they're going, they can go with a real kind of God-ordained sense of call and purpose. And so if you know young adults who are kind of either at a loose end or they know where they're going but they could do with some formation and some grounding, um, Catalyst is for them. So it's in Perth and Melbourne at the moment. We're um, going to start in probably Adelaide next year and um, we just think that's really important too. So that's enough of the free advertisement, letting you know what the college does. My height, I kind of like that. Um, hey, we're, um, it's great to be with you this morning. We've had this amazing passage read for us from Mark chapter 8. Um, if you turn to the person next to you and tell them or someone, three of you or whatever, but what I want you to do is you've got the Bible in front of you, it's in the pew, or maybe still open and all that. Turn to the person next to you and summarize the whole Bible, all 66 books, in one word. Okay, so just what's one word that you think captures the whole Bible? Okay, I'll give them 20 seconds. Just to, first word that comes to mind captures the Bible. What do you got? Let me, let me, um, let's come back together. What kind of words are describing the whole Bible? Relationships, love, love truth, great, light, God, God. <laughs> yeah, good answer, <laughs> miracle, life, so these are all good answers, aren't they, and, and I think they're all kind of correct, um, for me the word is shalom, it's the whole story of God's creation, of God's intention, of our fallenness and our brokenness and, and God's path of putting it back together and uh, through people uh, 
and the shalom, uh, the fullness of that, more than look at the, the every dimension of the peace, from the, the provision to the uh, the mental and the emotional stability to the healing to the the whole ecology, everything. It's the God's vision for the world, and um, I just think it's it's extraordinary, extraordinary book, an extraordinary um, word and concept. Not that I'm more right than you, um, because they all kind of kind of go together to give us something that's coming out of the text, which I want to have a look at in this passage in John John eight this morning, in Mark eight this morning for a few. Moments. So we know some things about Mark's gospel, okay? Um, you've, have you been drilling in Mark for a while? So you guys know Mark really well. You know some things like tradition says it's written by Mark and he followed around Peter's and, and took notes on his preaching and then eventually wrote it down. Modern scholars have some questions about that. I guess for me, I'm still happy that Mark to say I think Mark wrote it because it's such a long tradition that stood up. It doesn't really matter in terms of the word of God, but... Um, I'm kind of personally waiting for a little bit better evidence there. but um, So the tradition says Mark wrote this. And it was probably written between AD 60 to 70, probably under Nero's reign in, in Rome. Nero was this emperor of terror. And there was a Jewish revolt that went on at the time. And the Christians were at the bottom of the pile in everything. And they were the ones who caught it. So when there was the great fire in Rome that came probably we think, from Nero's palace. Um, the Christians were the easy ones to blame and persecute and say it came from them. There's a lot of like fake news that was spread out of the palace, out of the emperor's palace, directed to the most vulnerable. There's some themes there that might be still going in modern society. Um, it's a key, it's key theme is about discipleship. It's just always about the, the path of following Jesus and um, in the midst of challenge. And it was relevant for the Christians to whom it was written back then as they were dealing with the genuine hardship of following Jesus as a minority that was negotiating its way, as it turns out, out of Judaism, but also who they were um, as this underground persecuted minority uh, with no resources but this living God who they just could not follow. Um, so it's relevant for them, but it's relevant to us today too as we negotiate the powers of our modern culture and the pressures and all the things that dehumanise, that deconstruct, that um, devalue um, and, and are not for full human flourishing. So uh, we also know that um, Jesus in Mark, is, it's presented really interestingly, he's kind of like hero Jesus, like uh, Marvel, he would fit in a Marvel stadium kind of in, 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 in this, this new uh, imagination of Jesus uh, because... He's a man of action, he's an exorcist, he's a healer, he's a miracle worker. It's just like, da da da, you know, like Captain Underpants, you know. Sorry, I was, we had Captain Underpants last night at our house, and that's fresh in my mind, um, uh, the movie. Um, and as if Jesus is kind of presented in that kind of way, um, he's also presented as the Son of God, but he keeps it a secret. It's kind of like the divine secret, the messianic secret that's going on all the way through. He's, and so it's there, but it's kind of not there. And the disciples, and it comes to the last verse in our passage this morning, are really struggling to understand this. Now, it's easy for us, with hindsight, to know all the answers to all of these things, but they're walking in the mystery. And they don't quite get it. And they see, and they hear, and they know all the stuff that's going on. But in the midst of the journey, they don't quite get it. And that's one of these passages to start this morning. 
Um, and then Mark's Gospel ends with an empty tomb, which is, I think, relevant to our text here this morning. Uh, there's a story of seven loaves being turned into seven basketfuls and, and a reference to an earlier story where 5,000 people were fed with five loaves which gets turned into 12 basketfuls and everyone goes away not hungry. The empty tomb multiplied into the full effects of what we just remembered as we broke bread and drank the grape juice of the salvation of humanity and of our liberation and, and the fullness and the meaning that is there, the renewal, the healing, the reconciliation, the redemption that's, that's there out of that empty tomb that Mark leads us with, um, that magnification. So as we look at the passage this morning, this incredible story, um, there's, there's kind of three things that jump at me and, and I just want to use that to build the passage uh, together. And, the first, and you might want to have the Bible open in Jonathan Mark, Mark 8. Uh, you might want to have that open if it helps you, uh, just to make sure that these words are there. But the first one in verse 2, I'm just gripped by the fact that Jesus said, I have compassion for them. Jesus had compassion for this crowd of 4,000 people. The Gospel always includes compassion. In fact, I reckon if you've lost compassion, you've lost Jesus. It's just kind of fruit, part of Jesus' character. It's just, just compassion, raw, beautiful compassion. It's right there. There's, um, there's a lot of bombastic triumphalism in the modern church today, seeking to keep up with the modern world as though we're thinking the way to present Jesus and the church as, a, as an institution is to kind of beat the world at its own thing. It's just you won't find that in the gospel, in the nature of Jesus. You'll find the nature of Jesus. I love that there's a... I'm not going to get back up now. But there's a picture of Jesus uh, that some famous cartoon or drawer did of him just sitting down with children on a step. Just, that's, that's Jesus. And, and we know what he said about children and how valuable they are and how they should be included and and, and brought together. And you get the same image of Jesus with so many people who are broken or need healing or need help or need light or all of those things. It's always compassion is this frontline response from Jesus. Uh, the bombastic triumphalism, trying to say that we're big and we're powerful, trying to say that, you know, the church as an instrumentality can like that that stuff doesn't work. That's not the message of the gospel and it lacks the reality and the authenticity. But, but, but also, um, it's not Jesus because the gospel has you sitting on a step offering compassion and taking time and being with people. The, the gospel is seen in the Salvation Army officer who's with someone in dire straits and taking the time to pray for them and meet their material needs and whatever else is going on in their life. Well, the gospel is said in the aid worker in a refugee camp with a lost family who have been torn out of their circumstances, not for their fault, and trying to help them make sense of it and rebuild their life and feed them. The gospel uh, is seen in a neighbour, us, taking time to have a cup of tea with our neighbour. 
I mean, Jesus, the... the, the, the it's, it's, it, oh, you, you know this passage in, Mark, in Matthew backwards. It's all through the Gospels, but... Um, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. And in our modern, bombastic, individual, entertainment, power, image-driven culture, it's just so easy to not even know a neighbour. Literally, like the person who lives next door, but that's actually the person who we're called to love and deal with the stuff. And when they're playing the music late at night or they just, you know, you've got to go and you're in a rush, we all have neighbours. And the, the thing is, they're not perfect. And that's the point. We're meant to build a relationship and know them and love them and, and, and it's right there. So I just see first, it just jumps at me. Jesus' starting motivation as we enter into this text is compassion. Right on the front foot, it's compassion. And so he goes through the story of the feeding of this crowd. In this, this scene, it's 4,000, not 5,000. That was a couple of chapters earlier on. And in verse 8, he, he, Mark then says, The people ate and were satisfied. I love that word. Like, we live in a culture, in a world, I do. Maybe you don't. Maybe you live in a much better world over here, the other side of the arrow. But I live in a culture where there is no satisfaction. I, I was at uh, Kurong Bookstore, so it's like the Christian Central Bookstore, yeah. and I struggle greatly in there because I look at the books in the top ten and what people are reading, and I struggle greatly. And anyway, um, I was in there, and I'm, you go to the counter to buy your, buy your book, you go to the counter to pay, and they always have, you can advertise your conference for free. And so they had advertising brochures for the latest Christian conference that's coming up. And it was called, the conference's theme and kind of title was More. And I looked at it, and my first response was, I'm not more. <laughs> oh, less. And I said to the poor guy in the counter, I said, oh, Who called the conference More? Who needs more? I don't need more, I need less. I need, do you need, I need less in my. I want satisfaction. I want the stuff Jesus I don't want more. I don't want a bigger house. I don't want bigger toys. And like That's the world's message. And it's endless. And it's bottomless. It's how the economy is driven. And, and it's like this unending quest for economic growth and, and spending money on whatever you need to do. To, it, it, it's, I don't, it's not the gospel. And it doesn't more doesn't usually lead to satisfaction. The powers of this age, individualism and consumerism and militarism and globalism, and they're the insatiable things that want more, more and more. There's, there's a contentment, there's a satisfaction, there's a simplicity in Jesus, in the gospel. It's not about more. It's, it's about less. It's about loving your neighbour. It's about the relationship that you need to deal with. It's about peace, love, joy, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. It's these things that the Gospel takes us to. The image here in Mark 8.8 is a picnic. That's the image of the kingdom for me here. It's people sitting on the ground having more food than they need 
miraculously created, satisfied. They ate and they were satisfied. What a beautiful image of just a picnic. What a great day today, have a picnic. Just be satisfied. That's the kingdom. Sitting back on the grass in this glorious Melbourne sunshine before it goes tomorrow. <laughs> We're just nervously enjoying it while it's there. So that's they ate and they were satisfied. Jesus had compassion. The crowd ate and they were satisfied. And Jesus then says, okay, time to get out of here. Teachable moment coming. Let's cross the lake. So they go to this place called Dalmathia, which you pronounce really well because I... It's not known. They don't really know where it is. Some people speculate where it might be from, but we don't know that um, where it's from. But sure enough, the Pharisees found Jesus really quickly. The teachers of the law, the El Scriptamundos, the people, and they questioned him in verse eleven. And so he's going, "Oh, get me out of here! I'm sick of all this questioning." So they cross the lake again. It's interesting because we stop at verse twenty-one, but Jesus crosses the lake again. This is like this travel log. It's like Mark has collected all these scenes and put them together for us. In fact, it starts in chapter 1, during those days, which is a bit of a clue that this is like piling a bunch of scenes together to give us a snapshot of what's going on in Jesus' daily ministry. So they cross the lake again, and they're looking for the teachable moment, and the disciples are with him, and Jesus is reflecting back, and he's saying, now, remember a couple of chapters ago? Like, come on whenever it was ago, we had the crowd of 5,000. And remember those loaves, seven loaves, five loaves actually, and the fish, and we handed them out, and we brought them back in, and there was 12 basketfuls. We we couldn't eat, the crowd, 5,000 people couldn't eat what was handed out. And that was brought back just from that little amount that we were able to scrounge around the crowd. And then we've just had this experience with the 4,000. And what, what do we have? And the disciples are keenly going, yeah, we had... We had seven loaves, that's what we could find. And we passed it out among 4,000 people. And then when we brought back all the scraps, everyone was on the grass, they'd had their picnic, they were satisfied. We brought it all back in, how much was there again? And the disciples go, 12 basketfuls. So Jesus is going, oh wow, do you understand what's been going on here? And the disciples are scratching their heads and they're basically going, no, I don't understand. And you won't tell us that you're the son of God. There's all of this mystery here. Stop looking to this world. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is opening their eyes to. And all these other things will be added. That's the message in in, in Matthew um, chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom. And his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. I need to hear that. Do you need to, I need, do you need to hear that? Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. <clears throat> Satisfaction. Compassion. Peace. And he says in verse 21... Do you still not understand? I mean, it's good grounds to not understand. He won't tell them who he is. So there's this mystery going on. But they're seeing it in front of them, and he's trying to help them get it themselves. He's, you know, I think it's been studied. There's like something like um, 100 
192 questions that Jesus is asked in the Gospels, or something like that, and he only answers four of them. The other 188, he reflectively tells a parable or he asks with a rhetorical question. And he's the great teacher. It's, it's, it's not about giving them the obvious answers and expecting them to go away as though head knowledge and, and rational thinking is the answer. He wants them to actually find the kingdom and, and live into that. So stop, we need to stop looking at this world. And Jesus does this again and again through the Gospels. I think of the parable of Good Samaritan, probably one of the best known ones, right? So this is the story of uh, the uh, Levite who's come, so this guy is beaten and robbed and left for dead. And so the priest comes along and sees him and crosses the road and avoids him. And then the Levite come and does, comes and does the same. And then Jesus, making a Samaritan, who's the hated half-caste cousin of the Jew, the hero of the story, the, the Samaritan comes along and sees this guy left for dead and picks him up and takes him to a hotel inn and cares for him and then says to the innkeeper, here's more coins to pay for it and I'll come back and make sure there's more, do whatever you can to look after this guy. So the hero is the villain in, in the culture there. Um, Jesus today would talk about a Muslim in our, in our cultural context. He would pick someone who's despised and say, that's the hero. Because you see, Jesus is trying to help them understand that the old law, in the old law, the priest, the priest did the right thing by crossing the road and avoiding this guy. Because if the guy was dead, the priest and the priest touched him, then he had to go outside the camp for 21 days according to the law and he couldn't do his service to God as a priest. And same with the Levite. The law actually had got to a point where the religious leaders were not able to practice compassion because it would have compromised their ability under the law to do their duty to God. So Jesus picks the most unlikely person, a Samaritan, and says, this is the one who did the right thing because he displayed compassion. Because that's the kingdom. Compassion. Or Jesus tells the story in John 8 of the woman caught in the act of adultery and she's, the law says she should be stoned. Now, immediately we should think, hello, woman caught in the act of adultery. Normally if you're caught in the act of adultery, that takes two people, yeah? And yet there's one person here, right? Set up. Patriarchal culture, there's something going on here that's not quite equal because the bloke got away. But let's stone the woman because that's what the law says. And Jesus happens to walk past and the teachers of the law think, I've got him here, we're going to have to pit him down. He's got all this good guy, lovey-dovey stuff going on. He's going to have to teach the law in this instance. So they pin him down in the crowd. They want a good stoning. And this poor terrified woman is there thinking she's going to be stoned. And this rabbi, they want his verdict. And Jesus says, well, he who was without sin, let him cast the first stone. I love then what John says. This is in John 8. John then says, and the crowd started dispersing, starting with the oldest people. The other ones have been around a while. They had a little bit of wisdom. They're going, this doesn't end well. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Until the scene is left with just Jesus and this terrified woman. And here's the thing. Jesus could have thrown that first stone because Jesus was the one without sin. But his nature is not to throw the stone. His nature is compassion. 
every time. His nature is to reach out and offer hope for the broken. That's why we're here today. That's what we receive. That's what we go to give. I was very moved this week on the radio. Some of you may have heard John Fane with a lady who does a lot of work at the Broadmeadows uh, um, Camp for Asylum Seekers. And I'm closely attached with that through my friendship with Brad and Colleen Coe through our, our UNO network who they work with them and so my ears tweaked up and they had this situation there where they've had a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old children, brother and sister, of asylum-seeker parents who have been in that camp for five years and they're not allowed to go to school. Five years, not allowed to go to school. They sit at home, bored out of their tree, rotting, here in Melbourne. And our government has two security pays for two security guards to live in the house and monitor the family and even go into the room every 30 minutes overnight while the kids are sleeping to make sure they're there. Something is profoundly wrong. The compassion of Jesus is so different. The compassion of Jesus gives the benefit of the doubt and reaches out to the powerless and offers hope. And for some of us, it makes us fight for a different world for those two children and, like, and others like them and their parents and their dire situation. But the kingdom of God is for us as well as we go this week. Today, let's seek first the kingdom of God as we go. Let's look for the opportunity, not for more, let's look for the opportunity for satisfaction through compassion that we might be Jesus' hands and feet. With our hearts filled with compassion and our mouths filled with praise and our hands equipped to serve and in the midst of that may each of us see God this week in our world. That's what I get out of this passage.